you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's good, everybody? Welcome to episode 180 of the Chat with Traders podcast. On this episode, I chat with the great Larry Height. And I can't think of any other way to say it other than Larry really is the true definition of a market veteran. He's someone who first developed an interest for trading during the 60s. And as about 80% of traders who listen to this podcast are under the age of 50, that means Larry's been in the market for longer than most of us have even been alive, just to put some perspective on it. Besides a reputation for extreme risk management, Larry is perhaps best known as co-founding Mint Investments, a hedge fund formed in 1981. He's also considered to be one of the forefathers of trading systems and a pioneer of trend following. By 1988, Mint achieved an average annual compounded return of over 30%, its best year being 60%, uh, that was in 1987, the year of the stock market crash, and its worst year being up 13%. By 1990, Mint was the world's largest hedge fund at the time, with $1 billion of assets under management. It was also around this time that Mint's performance caught the attention of Jack Schwager as Larry was profiled and interviewed in the first book of the best-selling Market Wizards series. Now, almost 30 years on, Larry has written a book of his own, reflecting on life experiences, trading lessons, and pretty much how the most unlikely kid in the classroom went on to generate a significant personal fortune. His book is titled The Rule. And if you go to the link chatwithtraders.com slash the rule, that'll take you directly to it on Amazon. So what did Larry and I discuss for this episode? Well, trading, of course, risk philosophy and probability, life and memorable moments, and Larry's work as a philanthropist too. On with the show now, ladies and gents, here is Larry Height. Given a quick read through your book, uh, I was very mindful not to read it too much uh, because I thought, 
you know, you, you're probably going to have a few interviews in these coming weeks or months. And I thought it might be interesting to try and ask some questions which you might not get asked uh, perhaps in other interviews or at least not as frequently. Super. And one of the things which I think is very interesting about you, Larry, and where you're currently at in life and the career that you've had, I thought, you know, when I do an interview, I like to try and think, what's the overall purpose of, of speaking to this person? And when I thought about it and, and thought about this conversation that we might have, I kind of thought that it'd be good to get your thoughts on, on life and also trading and markets, you know, from someone who's had immense financial success uh, in this field. Um, and, and in line with asking questions, which you might not often get asked, I thought I'd ask you this question. Is it true that you first learned about commodity trading or maybe even trading in general through a Playboy magazine? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I saw it on ago. I, I, well, let me give you a little bit of a background. All right. Look, when you're a kid, when you're a boy, the two things that you can do well, you know, that you'd be outstanding. You'd be an outstanding athlete or you'd be an outstanding student or a combination of both, right? Well, I did shit at both. I was, and for the same reason, I'm blind in one eye, virtually totally blind, and I'm dyslexic. So that really fucked sports for me. And it didn't help me very much. Because being dyslexic, when I was dyslexic, it wasn't even in the dictionary. I read about dyslexia, so I was dating this girl who was a teacher, and she was, um, and she had a book on learning disabilities. And I'm a curious person, so I picked up the book. I start to read about dyslexia. Couldn't spell it if you if you put a gun to my head, but and all of a sudden, the more I read it, the more I see that they're describing me. And I think that so I had two big failures in my early life. I wasn't good at sports, and I wasn't particularly good at school. Now, where I grew up. You know, that probably the the next career choice might have been crime. In the neighborhood I grew up in, that would be a, a third, you know, you, because crime is a lot easier to get into than great athletics or sports. There's, there's no test. Um, so I had this feeling of... It's really bad feeling about myself. But I always was um, a risk taker because I figured the only way I'm going to get ahead in life is to take a risk. And, and I, heard, I read this article in Playboy about if you really want to make money, you become a commodity trader. Who said it? Yeah, that's because my family is sort of second generation Americans. It was very 
important to do well financially. And I thought, well, I'll take a look at this. And then I, the more I got into it, the more interesting it became to me. And a lot of ways that people thought were crazy. Like I had a teacher, and uh, the teacher said, um, I don't know, what did he say? He said, oh, we went through all financial instruments. And uh, he said, well, like commodities. These guys are really crazy. They trade on about 5% margin, and they borrow that money. The whole class laughed, except one person, me. I thought it was pretty amazing. She could do that. And that I didn't think it was so crazy because I understood the math better than he did. Because the math, you know, you know, the way the math goes. If, if 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 something is trading, let's say as a ten percent volatility, right? You can see you can't leverage too much because it can go down ten percent. But you, but if you if you look at futures when when I started, the volatility on twenty positions. Much different than the volatilities of one. Most people, when you hear stories about market traders, they always tell you about like the Jesse Livermore stories. They they tell you about the one trade or the two trades. Well, in reality, you change the whole probability set if you're trading twenty things, and if you're trading twenty things. That could be long, short, or both. That changes the whole game. And the risk changes. The risk goes down geometrically. So, what the teacher didn't know was that the spread of bets changes the game, changes the profitability. In my current trading model, uh, I, I I trade a lot of options, and I I go long and short. Sometimes the same kinds of things, and I'm right about seventy percent of the time. Most traders in futures, if they're lucky, they're right thirty five percent of the time, and probably twenty percent more like is average. So. I could see the mathematical advantage of diversification, dynamic diversification. And that's, that allows you to use a lot of leverage, but not in the way people think about leverage. It's not all in corn. It's not all in silver or gold. You spread your bets, you spread your probabilities, and you have a much different risk-reward parameters. So this was, what you're talking about here is something you heard in a classroom. It wasn't until many years later which you actually began to trade for yourself, though. Am I, am I correct there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to, but I couldn't find the place. 
And it took, took a while. She, she, you know, I had to take a job with a stockbroker, but I wanted to trade commodities. Can I just ask you something, Larry? Um, Anything you want. <laughs> so you kind of hinted at it uh, when you were speaking just before. Uh, your family was second generation Americans and you kind of felt some, uh, a little bit of pressure to be financially successful. Uh, would you say that you were, you were perhaps, you know, you personally were motivated by money? Like you, you yourself did have a strong desire to become oh, oh, wealthy? Oh, absolutely. For sure. Well, yeah. Yeah, no question about that. Okay. And then when you came into trading, did your learning difficulties, uh, if that's you know the best way to phrase it, um, did they present any unique challenges for you when you started you know, researching? No. Strangely enough, they actually gave me an advantage. Go look at reports of losers. People lose fortunes. They have one consistent, consistent variable. They get into a losing position and they stay with it. It's a very Western world kind of a thing. They got the grit. No, man, I'm fucking used to being a bad at sports. I'm bad at school. So it is no revelation to me that I'm wrong. And, um, when I tried to get an article published, uh, the guy said, well, yeah, what I really want is a guy, do you know anything about game theory? Said, of course I do. Well, you know, I'm a partner of working with me. Yeah, know all about it. So I then, after I bullshitted him, I said, well, good. If you don't, well, yeah, I said, no problem. Right? And, um, so I now find, I take these games, these books, I go to the science library, and there's not that many on game theory. And they're all fucking written in Greek. A lot of symbols, right? I don't know any of that. But I know about what I want to do, and I watched a, a, a good trader who traded across the board. I said, all right, what do you need? Who are you trading against? In every game, you're against someone, okay? Well, I did an analysis of who actually was the opponent. Well, there were the people on the floor, right? There were people in the trade, and there's a speculator. Now, what was the speculator's advantage? Well, what were the other guys? Well, the guy on the floor, he had the cheapest, quickest trade. And by, by that, this was the 70s, in, in, the, in the, the, the margins and the commissions were high. So one, he, the floor, had speed. Um... And he was way cheaper than the, the retail client. Two, 
What were the disadvantages? Because the trade, the floor, is well, you know, if you looked at it, if you're on a sugar desk, you can't go trade cotton. So I could do things, diversify my risk, that the traders didn't know what their jobs didn't allow them to do that. You know, they traded precious metals. So you within that. But you didn't have enormous scope. As they were. But as a speculator, I have the whole board. And then as long as there's liquidity, I can go do what I want. And that struck me as a great advantage. Were you a trend follower from the outset or did you experiment with some other uh, styles and methods of trading uh, prior? I did. The first thing you look at is fundamentals, right? Because that sort of is what, what you see. But no, I, 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 my heart was a trend follower. I think it was, it called to me as a very easy way. Because I was so bad. To be good at this game, you gotta, as David Ricardo said, you've gotta cut your losses. Now, if you wanna really make money, not only do you gotta cut your losses, but you gotta add to your winners. If, if if your clients or whoever cuts their losses, they say two things. They cut their losses and add to the winners. They'll, be, they'll get quite wealthy. But, but do, you, do you grasp what I'm saying? Uh, yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. I mean, it sounds very simple in theory, right? You know, things that are simple in theory don't mean that they're simple in practice. Right. You have to, to be, you almost have to have some of the problems I had to be a really good trader. Because I'm used to being wrong. Yeah, and that's something you emphasize quite a bit throughout your book, especially, um, you know, through those first few chapters. I, I sort of really noticed that. Um, when did you begin to gain traction as a trader? Like, did you feel like you had, uh, you know, you had some some success with it fairly early on, or did it take you a while to to get some uh, get some traction? It more or less came natural to me, you know, just like because I couldn't see ball sports did not work for me. I probably would have been a lot better if I would have been born in Australia. <laughs> no, no, no. Basically, you play rugby or, or soccer. The ball's a lot bigger, and you have two feet to work with. So you know. So because I, 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 I was not a good student. Um. I was not a good athlete. 
the idea that I could be wrong was not unique to my life. Do you recall your first really big trade, sort of a key turning point early on in your career? Can you tell a story about that? Sure. Well, I had a friend of mine, you know, because I'm dyslexic, I've always had to have a guy with me who could see. We got, he had his idea to trade corn. We, we, we made a lot of money in pork bellies, which I understood pretty well. But he, he was, you know, he could, anyway, he had his idea of corn. And so we figured, hey, we made all this money, we'll make more money. So we trade, now there were two contracts of corn, um, December and January, right? And so we put on a spread, roll one short the other. Well, There was going to be some drought in the Midwest. What I remember most about this drought, everybody knew it was coming, and, you know, I said, okay, so we're going to go long and short one. Well, what we went long went down the limit. What we went short went up the limit. And there I was working in H hands and my money just disappeared. Holy shit. So I go out in the hall and there are these Swiss guys coming down the stairs and the Mr. Thoros crazy. Because I got on my knees and said, God, please, please. I don't mind losing the money. Just, I don't want to have a debit. I don't want a debit, please. So, and that was a very big pivotal moment. Uh, I, my friend hadn't done the work as carefully as he should have. He was trading two, two crops of corn. And, uh, but it was really, I was very young. I was young in the business, and I didn't know that you could lose money that fast. As it turned out, I... So you went far too big on this trade, like you hadn't managed your risk very well? No. Okay. I like how you told that story, because when I asked the question, I was, I was uh, kind of uh, presuming that you might tell the story about a big winning trade, but instead you, you focused on a losing trade, which I like. Um, do you have a memory of you know, a big winning trade which occurred yeah. early in your career? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's hear that. So, I was trading cattle and um, I had figured out that, yeah, the cattle, they really weren't going to be kind of calves they had uh, that they needed for that particular contract. And so, the market, but but the market thought they would be too much because they, they they didn't understand the months well, and that you know one month was not it was different. It's a different contract. 
you know, it, it's cattle, but it's whatever it is, right? So it went against me enormously. Uh, not enormously in, 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 in what I would think today, but given the amount of money my friend and I had, it was enormous. Finally, um, I didn't know how to get out of this contract because it was a lot of limit down in both ways. And I went to the floor of the exchange and uh, I said, I got to get out of this contract. And there was a guy hanging around who wasn't on the floor, but he had a ticket to be on the floor. And I said, John, you got to get me out. And I picked him up. I threw him in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he get me the fuck out. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm going to punch. I said, yeah, fine. He punched me later. Get, get me the fuck out now. And um, I got out. And I broke even. And then I went on the... Then I had a very interesting trade that went with me. Cattle. And I made... I come from probably like, like an average, you know, um, lower income family. I went for out a small business, but it wasn't a big deal. And all of a sudden, the cattle trade went with me. I mean, it really went with me. And I was up a quarter of a million dollars. Now, this is 1972. Right? So imagine what a quarter of a million dollars worth then. And what do you think you're 30 years old? You just made a quarter of a million dollars would be right in your account. What would your emotion be? Uh, you'd be pretty thrilled. You would think that, right? The big emotion that ran through me was fear. Not fear of losing. But I had this girlfriend, and I knew that if she saw that I had a quarter of a million dollars, she wanted to get married. <laughs> and I did not want to get married. I mean, you know, so I said, yeah, yeah, and I, and luckily enough, things worked out, and I didn't marry, I wasn't going to marry her anyway. But, um, we had great sex. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that was my uh, reason for being enthusiastic about it. She was very pretty. But the point was the fear of all the sun. For I know you're a very rich guy. Uh, you were born rich. But I don't know that's true. I had never had a quarter. Of, I had never seen anybody that I knew in my family had a quarter of a million dollars in cash. So I had fear of how 
all of a sudden, anything that I wanted in my life, I could have. And that, I thought that was very strange. Was it almost like you'd, you'd kind of done very poorly at most other things you'd tried in your life? Uh, and then here you were in trading and you just almost hit the jackpot in some ways on this, this massive cattle yeah. trade. And right. so you no longer had kind of an excuse or something to fall back on or something to blame for, you know, not being able to succeed at something because you just proved to yourself that you could. Well, yeah, but I never think of it. I'm a very disciplined trader now. All right. And, and, and if I was smart, I would have been even more so then. I always, I had a big fear that even when I was making the money, somebody would take it from me. Because I never wanted anything. Uh, do you play team sports? No. Okay, well, that well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if you, if you, no, 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 no. Well, you know, you know, when you're a kid and you're the last person anybody wants to have on the team, even though they like you, you have a different view of yourself. You know, so I always had a feeling that, you know, even when I did well, it was almost alone, you know. And after a couple of years of making several million dollars a year, now I feel fucking entitled. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. That big cattle trade that you had yeah. where you made $250,000, uh, you know, looking back on that now, you know, nowadays I know you, you're very big on risk management. That's one of the things which uh, you you have a strong reputation for. 
back in those days, as this was one of your sort of your earlier trades, do you looking back on that? Do you feel as though you, you know, you risked far too much on that trade? Like obviously, oh, sure. it happened to work out, but uh, yeah. if it hadn't yeah. worked out, you might have been back in that hallway on your knees praying that you weren't going into debit again. Yeah. Oh, sure. The whole thing, the raw emotion. That's why I am. I have a machine. You, you, look, I have computers. I had all kinds of scientists work for me, right? Computer guys, statisticians, blah, blah, blah. I don't really ever feel that I made the trades. I feel the machine makes the machine. The odds came out. I've studied probabilities. I use a lot of Bayesian probabilities. And I... The markets make the money for me. I don't make the market. I really don't. Well, let me ask you about that. Let's go into that a little further uh, because this is something which you speak about, again, a lot in your book uh, and I know it's very much uh, influences how you think uh, in terms of thinking in probabilities. So let me ask you, how do you determine the odds on a trade? Because that's something you, you speak about quite a bit. So, you, you know, when you go into a trade, you don't necessarily have complete information. How do you no. determine the odds? I count. I, every trade has a configuration, a mathematical configuration. What do you mean Straight by that? Up, well, um, a new low or a new high. They happen all the time in various time frames. You can count them. That's the only advantage the markets have. Gives you all this data. So I know how many times in a given market they had new highs, new lows. So I can make a probability assessment. Then I decide how much of my money do I want to risk? Because I start with the idea that I can lose on that trade. I won't lose on a bunch of trades. If I do 100 trades, I'll make money, for sure. I, I hate to say that. Sounds very, very arrogant. But I run a casino. And as my wife once said to me, the casino always seems to win. And you know why casinos win? Because they have an edge which they uh, yeah. play over the long run. Yeah, right, right, right. That's exactly what I, right. I know my edge. And and I know it in a Bayesian form. Thomas Bayes, once ago, said if you want to make a prediction, you look at it a hundred times. You can have a pretty good idea. And, and see, I don't believe, what do you think is the major fundamental in every market? The major fundamental, uh, yeah. can you elaborate a little more? Well, I mean, do you think it's uh, the supply, demand, 
uh, what makes a price? Well, I guess it depends how aggressive the, the buyers are uh, as opposed to how aggressive the sellers are. Okay, okay, right. That's what makes the price. That's, what, that's actually what makes the price. So the price is made by the last investor. Could be the stupidest person. Could be the smartest person. It could be just an average person. But the point is, it, 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 it's the price, and it's real. You know that if the exchange is fair, which most of the time it is, it, it's what people, at that moment in time, are willing to pay for that commodity, or stock, or whatever. And you can actually go back and look at the record of those prices. And you can see how the prices react when they're going down, when they're going up, when they're going sideways. Okay, so just going back to the question of how you determine the odds of any trade. So let's say you're sitting at your computer today. Um, I presume most of your trades nowadays are, are fairly automated. But Yeah, totally automated. And it's automated for one reason. The automation keeps me on track. It, it negates, I had to teach myself very early in my trading life that I have to have a clear, I never put an order without a stop. I know exactly when I'm going to get out, if I have to get out. I know exactly how deep the market is. Can, I, can the market handle this? And that's, so I'm th always thinking, did you ever, you, you know who Kenny Rogers is, right? Uh, yeah, the, the singer. Yeah. Kenny Rogers wrote a song called The Gambler. And uh, the gambler, so Kenny in the song meets this gambler. And he says, um, to make a deal, the guy says, uh, I'll tell you about gambling if you give me the whiskey in your bottle. Right? So the old guy drinks it down. He said, look, when, you, when you're sitting at the table, don't count to win it. It's time enough for counting when the dealing's done. That's the line. Well, he's wrong because if you're a, you're a good speculator, you know exactly what every dollar means to you. And you know it. You, go, you measure that from where your stop is against how much your core capital is. So I'm always running that the that function through my head in anything I do. Right. So determining the odds on any trade, because you're a very mechanical trader, very systematic, you're, you're a systematic trend follower. Um, you can take this strategy. You've obviously tested it over historical data, and you know 
that next time a trade opportunity comes up that meets these parameters of this strategy, uh, there's a certain percent chance of that. Right, right. Okay. Um, another thing which I, I liked the phrase you used in your book, um, actually there's two things. You talked about smart bets and observable facts. And I think maybe both these things tie in with what we're speaking about here. So would you mind just speaking about um, you know, what you mean when you talk about those two things, observable facts and smart bets? Okay. Well, it's very, it's, it's, it's very okay. A smart, there are really, people think there are good bets and bad bets. And they, in their mind, they say bets they lose are good, are, are, are bad bets, and bets they win are good bets. That's not really true. If you look at it statistically, there are good bets where you have a big chance of winning a lot of money and the odds are with you. A bad bet is you have a big chance of losing a lot of money relative to your core capital, and that's a bad bet because that could put you out of the game. That, that takes you from being a casino operator to being a punter. So it's a good bet is when you have the odds and you can make way over what the odds will do. Doesn't mean you will, but the odds are with you that you'll make money. If you do it, I always do it. If I did this bet a thousand times, how would I do? And I won't do bets that if I didn't, if I did them, um, uh, you know, a hundred times, I would come. I would have to come out a winner, and that's really important to me. So I. I go from being a punter to being the house. Right. And then the second part uh, about observable facts. What do you mean when you, we talk about things which are observable facts? Did you did it make a new high in, in, in a month? That's observable. In 30 days, it is not better than that high. That's an observable fact or, or low or whatever. But is it a fact? It's not a story. It's not telling me what's going to happen later on or whatever. It's an observable fact that two people with ordinary intelligence could observe that fact. You know? And it's, it's a number. While we're on this subject, and as you're highly regarded as one of the people, sort of very early to trading systems, what are the most important things for traders to remember when building trading systems? Understand what you can lose relative to your core capital. A trading system gives you an enormous edge. You don't get an edge unless you can stay around. And you got to get the odds on your side. If you're, better, if you're putting it all on black, the odds are not on your side, and and you 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 always you always got to ask yourself when you do anything, what's the expected value? How much does average out if I do it a hundred times? So is it a very good bet 
they give me a high return, and the odds are, you know, you know, a good bet is defined as you can make a lot of money, you can lose, you know, you can make a multiple of what you risk. Do you, just expanding on that further, do you have any risk management rules which you live by? Like, I guess, just going a little further into your risk management philosophy there. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I always figure out what the loss could be. And if I can't take the loss, I cut the bet down to a point I can. I, I'm totally indifferent to what the fucking market does most of the time. I would rather win than lose, but I'm going to be really willing to be the house. One of the things which stood out to me from reading uh, your Market Wizards interview with Jack Schwager from, uh, when was that? Was that the 90s when that book came out? Um, somewhere around that time. You can tell me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of like 80s, 90s. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And also your book, which is is coming out, it seems like early on in your career, you were around or you knew of numerous people who had made quite a lot of money in the financial markets and then also later on lost that money and not even necessarily like way further in their career, but in a short period of time had lost a lot of the money they had um, made. That must have really shaped your philosophy on risk. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I always go against my core capital. I don't feel I'm Superman, and I'm only want to bet a given percentage of my core capital. I don't break those rules. I make money by staying alive and betting. Really, that's what it comes down to. One of the things which I, I feel like I should probably bring up here is we're talking a lot about you know, betting when the odds are in your favor. This, I think the second part to that is also sizing your position correctly. Correct. So how do you think about position sizing? I, I go from where I enter to where the stop would be divided by what my core capital is. It's really third grade shit. <laughs> yes, it is. It is very simple. <laughs> no, 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 but simple. Simple has a very bad reputation. Sure. But I'll tell you what simple really is. It's robust. I don't want to be in anything that's very complicated or they don't know how to unwind it. I want to come out and stay alive because the more I stay alive, the more money I make. And I have a great lifestyle. Married to a beautiful woman. I live on in Miami and in New York two of the best streets around in either city. And for a guy who was left back once in school, you know, um, who was never in the bright classes, who was never a great athlete, life couldn't be better. Why do I want to fuck it up? Well said. <laughs> Just for some clarification on your position sizing method there, what 
you said you'll take your entry price and then your stop price, that's your risk, and then that should be a certain, I think you said that should be a certain percentage of your capital. What, do you, what, do you, what sort of number do you use there? I use it just each time, but it's what I, I, I can't stop playing. I'm in a, uh, as one guy, uh, Alex Razorman, who came to work for me, and I, he had been a, an engineer and very smart. And uh, I gave him some numbers to run. And he turned to me and uh, Ali said, this is a positive, mean game. Now, I didn't know what fucking positive, mean was. <laughs> but he was right. On balance, my expected value of any trade I made is positive. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Doesn't mean that, that it will work out that way. But if you average them out, yeah, it works. And, and that's why I'm never really shooken up. What about when you enter into a drawdown? You know, have there been any challenging moments during your career which have, have come from drawdowns which you've gone through? Maybe in the very beginning of my career. Part of being a speculator is you have to live with drawdowns. You can never make a bet that you can't. So I got to keep the game going. I size all my bets to the law of large numbers and having them work for me. Can you recall your most memorable, your most severe drawdown? And I'm talking like on a portfolio level. At the very beginning, I had a, a because, I, because of my vision, I always had a, somebody like an assistant. And this guy, very smart guy, looked like Omar Sharif. Um, he was a scholarship guy, but he hid we were partners, and he got into a bad trade, and he fudged the books. And it turned out, from being a wealthy guy, I was a much poorer guy. So I had to unwind his trades. Uh, I had to we had used a lot of borrowed money, which should have been hedged, and he didn't hedge. So I had to deal with all of that. It was very, extremely tough for me. Do you recall what kind of uh, drawdown that was, like in terms of your, your capital? Yeah, we had about $10 million, and we owed $7 million. We owed about 20% of that. No, less, 10% of taking all the money we had minus 10% that we didn't have. Wow. Roughly. But, yeah. And I, and, I, and I bought into this whole deal and took him along because his job was to keep the numbers straight. He was a numbers guy. You must have fudged the books in a pretty serious way. That's, uh, that's quite significant. Well, well, it was a highly leveraged account, and um, no, no, if, you know, you, you know, if you're a straight guy, you can't believe. After all, he was my partner; he had the same liability I had. So, 
He might have wiped out my family, but he's wiping out his family, too. If you're a rational person, you can't imagine somebody would do that. I mean, I come from Brooklyn, and in my neighborhood, it was not so hard to imagine that somebody would want to fuck you over. But that somebody would fuck himself over. That was amazing. Like, I can't tell you how terrible that was. But it was, it was and then I had to get him to cooperate, to unwind all these trades, get the investors to put in more money. It was really tough. Did you feel as though that could have been it for you at, at the time? Like that might have been the end of your trading career right there? Could, could have been, but, you know, I just keep going. Look, here's the deal. You're up against the wall. You have, like, you, you could tell the guy, you know, fucking shoot me. Or you can bluff your way out. Well, if you don't try to work things out, you have a zero chance of improving anything. If you figure out, hey, maybe I can stall this. Maybe I can change it. Just, you're not accepting defeat. It turns out I went on and I started mint. Larry, as we're getting on a little bit here, and I should probably let you go shortly, there are, there are just a few more things I'd like to ask you. Sure. You know, you've had a, a long career in the markets. You're a very wise man and you've, you've been uh, immensely successful uh, financially. I'm interested to know what's been the most rewarding moments of your life? My wife was dying in America. She was from London. And... Um, there was a guy named Harvey McGrath, that man. And uh, his, his wife, um, so my wife was sort of missing London and she was dying in New York. And I went and slept in the hospital with her. And uh, she didn't ask me to, but I, I could see her eyes. She wanted that. And um, so, Stanley Fink was starting a children's hospital. And so and I wrote a, a gift into the hospital. And uh, it was in memory of a conversation between Alice McGrath and Sybil Height. And um, I was in that children's ward. Alice McGrath's daughter later on became a pediatric, pediatric doctor. And she, she, she was in a London hospital and she was pushing this pram, this baby, because what I gave them were um, the tweeny babies, a sealed crib that would keep the embryo, keep the baby warm. And uh, Allison saw it, holy shit, it was to mark a conversation between Sybil Hyde and Allison McGrath. And that was great. A thousand babies have been saved by that crib. Loved it. Fucking great. 
never particularly got a thank you. I just did it, and it was great. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, really. And I always try in my charity to do shit like that. Yeah, you do quite a bit of charity work nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't really need the money. I mean, I'm not super rich, you know. I'm not, you know, know, maybe I got a hundred million dollars, but I'm not really rich, rich. I'm not like Malcolm Zuckerberg rich. (laughs) Or even David Harding rich. Uh, But yeah, that was like a great thing. It's great to help those babies. And it's a gift that keeps giving. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And if I was just to flip that question on you, looking back over your career, you know, are there any regrets that you have? No. I don't regret anything I did that I either lost or won at. I don't give a shit. <laughs> no, I don't. The only regrets I ever had was every pretty girl I didn't come on to. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's your only regret. No, no. Not trying is a much bigger regret to me than failing. That was the benefit of having those learning, those disabilities. If you don't try mathematically, you have a 100% chance of not winning. If you try at something, you 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 may double your chance of winning. So if there's something good enough, you always got to give it a go. All right, is there anything else you need? Uh, I think that's about it. Um, you know, you've you've just finished your book, uh, The Rule. Uh, what's the release date of that book? When does that come out? October one. October one. Okay, so this uh, episode is going to come out just before then. Uh, but I'll put a link, if anyone who's listening to this episode right now would like to read uh, Larry's book, The Rule, uh, which is coming out October 1st, uh, you can go to chatwithtraders.com slash the rule, and that'll take you directly to uh, Larry's book on Amazon, if you'd like to Thank you. get a copy there. And I, I enjoyed talking to you. I also very much enjoyed it, Larry. So, you know, I want to say a, a massive thank you to you for, for taking this time to speak with me. It's a, it's a real honor. It's, uh, it's quite inspiring as well to, to hear from you. Oh, thank you. So, are there any final words you'd like to share, uh, you know, with any aspiring traders coming up today? Don't forget the rule. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. How come you called it the rule? Like, what, what's behind the title? Because I like simple shit. And I once said, you know, it's really simple. You know, it started, I said, look, in this game, you always have to catch your losses. I don't care how, what knowledge you have. And, we, and I've tested this. So you must cut your losses. Now, that'll keep you alive. It'll make you a good living. If you want to get rich, the next thing you do is add to your winners. You do that. Anybody did that, any formula, 
go back in computer, you'll make a lot of money. So that's the rule. And by the way, the rule can apply if you're in a bad marriage, bad job, or whatever. Yeah. Well, again, uh, folks, that book, uh, chatwithtraders.com slash the rule, uh, that link will redirect you to Amazon uh, and you can find Larry's book there. And Larry, again, I truly appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with me. Uh, it's been very enjoyable. So thank you. It's enjoyable to me too. And if you're in New York, give me a call. 100%. 100%. Thank you. Bye. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. 